Okay. Well, uh, we'll have a copy of the Bible up in front of you today. We're going to continue our series and look at uh, Genesis chapters 1 to 3. And uh, for those of you that have been coming for the last couple of weeks, uh, I'm glad that you've uh, come to the third in our series of talks on Genesis 1 to 11. Uh, if this is your first time here this semester, uh, then uh, uh, welcome, a warm welcome to you. Uh, one of the things we do at the EU is we work our way through various books of the Bible, and today is no, no different. At our public meeting today, we're looking at um, primarily chapter 3 of Genesis, and we're going to be spending some time in the next couple of chapters going up to chapter 11 as well. Uh, if you've been here for the last couple of weeks, then you'll know that we've been uh, dealing with the book of Genesis, uh, and um, we've uh, looked at how Genesis is a book about the origins uh, not only of the world, but also of the nations uh, that are in the world and also the nation of Israel. In many respects, the book of Genesis forms the prehistory, if you like, of the nation of Israel. Uh, and I um, proposed that a couple of weeks ago when we looked at Genesis chapter 1, uh, that the account that's given to us in Genesis chapter 1, uh, as the author Moses intended for it to be read, and as the hearers of the day would have understood, was one of functional creation. Um, what I mean by functional creation is that God is doing an act which involves naming, it involves separating, it involves assigning function and assigning roles. Um, one of the grounds for this is particularly in Genesis chapter 1 is there is very little evidence, uh, and in the same way that the word, the word, that word that we translate as create, is used in the rest of the Old Testament, there is very little evidence of the material stuff from which the things are made which is one of the arguments to suggest that the word that we translate as create could actually be translated as a functional creation rather than a material creation. Um, we looked uh, also in the last couple of weeks at some of the big themes that come up in Genesis, particularly with the way in which that God deals with humanity uh, and the spread of sin in the world. And this week is no different as we look at Genesis chapter 3, particularly spending some time at the curses that God brings upon the snake, the woman and the man. Of particular importance to us, though, is the one act, the sin of disobedience, where Adam and Eve take of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and in doing so, put aside the right and proper word of God, that they would live under his rule, and they say to God, actually, no, thanks, we'll do it our way. We'll do it another way. We don't actually trust entirely what you've suggested, so we're going to do it the way we want to do it. And in that one act of disobedience, there is a significant breakdown in the intimacy of relationship within the creation. Not only the intimacy of relationship between God and mankind, both Adam and Eve, but also a breakdown in the intimacy between Adam and Eve. And then a breakdown in the intimacy between Adam and Eve and the rest of the created order and the creation. I don't know how your parents raised you, but they've obviously done a fairly good job so far. Uh, because uh, you are up here for more intensive purposes. You are the best looking group out of all the three weeks of public meetings. I noticed that some people have now started coming to Thursday's public meeting. Uh, you're just trying to catch up, aren't you? you know? uh, I don't know how your parents raised you, but uh, there may be moments when you're being raised as a child where they let you get away with certain things. And for some of you, you may have got away with more than your siblings, or perhaps more than other people that you knew. Uh, so at times, parents let their children get away with certain things, sort of small acts of disobedience. And often the parent rationalises it and says, actually, it's just not worth the fight. I recognise they've done the wrong thing, but in this instance, it's just not worth the fight. I'm just too tired this afternoon. I'm just going to let them keep drawing on the wall. 
because their dad will be home soon <laughs> and he's the one who's going to have to paint over it later anyway. <laughs> I don't know how your parents raised you, but notice here in the text that we've been looking at in Genesis 1-3 to that God is not like an absent parent. God, when faced with a particular moment of disobedience in the relationship, moves to act. God responds to Adam and Eve's disobedience. We do well to remember the weight, the significance of this one particular act. Which is why I want to start, before we get to Genesis 3, in Romans chapter 5. Turn with me to Romans chapter 5. At which point you're thinking, I found Genesis, now he wants me to find Romans. Just sort of go towards the back, and then come back towards the front, and when you hit the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, you've gone too far. Or if you're using the version that I'm using, it's on page 1,134. <laughs> See, in Romans chapter 5, in Romans chapter 5, the Apostle Paul says this about Genesis chapter 2 and 3. And I wanted to start here because I think this is where we need to land when we consider what's going on in Genesis 3 particularly. And so I'm sort of going to spoil the ending. I'm sorry if you are sort of person who likes surprises. Uh, I'm spoiling the surprise. This is where it's all going, okay? However, that is not an excuse to then switch off for about the next 30 minutes because uh, I want you to do the work in the text of Genesis 3. Notice what Paul says in Romans 5, particularly in verse 12. He says this, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. Uh, Paul, the apostle here, is talking about the one act of disobedience where Adam and Eve take of the truth the knowledge of good and evil. Do you see the implications of this one act of disobedience? Sin comes into the world. Death comes through sin. Death spreads to all men. Why? Because all follow in the pattern of Adam and all sin. The reason you will not live beyond somewhere between average life expectancy in Australia is about high 70s. Some of you may make it nearly to 100. But the reason you will not live beyond that is because of this one act of Adam thousands of years ago. The reason why you struggle with sinful desires, particularly if you're a Christian, is because of this one act of Adam thousands of years ago. The reason why is you look out on the world and it's in such a mess because of the one act of Adam. The reason why the green and ecological movement is doing so well these days, well, they're doing so well because the world is in such a mess. Why? Because of the sin of Adam. See, this is the significance that the Apostle Paul gives to this one act that Adam and Eve commit. But notice also how seriously God takes this one act of disobedience in the solution that he provides to fix the broken relationship. Uh, if you've sort of been reading, you could sort of skim down through verse 12, 13, 14, 15. Uh, come down to uh, verse 18. Romans 5, verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. What Paul is getting at here is that the act of Jesus Christ dying and being raised again to life is the means by which God 
can declare people to be back in a right relationship with him. The means by which God can declare people to be righteous, of right standing before him, if you like. So in Genesis chapter 3, we see a fracturing and a breakdown of the relationship between God and humanity. There is no longer an intimacy that was there in the garden in Genesis 2. Paul argues that God fixes this one act of disobedience with one act of righteousness. Not any act of righteousness that you and I can do, but one act of righteousness done by the man Jesus Christ. And in doing so, in the same way that Adam is our representative, and as we follow in the pattern of Adam, because we're human, we will sin and disobey God, Christ can act as our representative and restore us to relationship with God. Such is the significance of God's response to the one act of disobedience that Adam and Eve carried out in Genesis chapter 3. Turn back with me to Genesis chapter 3 and let's look in some detail at that which God fixes in sending Jesus. Let's look at the sin that comes into the world and the nature of the curse that comes upon the serpent, the woman and the man. We do well to notice that God responds to Adam and Eve's disobedience and responds quickly Particularly, chapter 3, verse 10. God calls the man and the woman, and the Lord God said in verse 10, I heard, oh sorry, and Adam heard, Adam says, and he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid. Notice the first mention of fear in the text of the narrative, Genesis narrative. The first time fear has now come into the relationship. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He, that's the Lord God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Other than the biggest buck pass in all of human history, which we looked at a little bit last week, do you notice what else is going on in the account in the way in which God responds to Adam and Eve's disobedience? He responds quickly and immediately. He doesn't leave the fracturing of relationship to get any worse, nor does he let it continue. He deals with the now broken intimacy in the relationship. He also comes and judges and subsequently punishes, as we will see in a minute. But he does it with mercy. And we start to see now in the account of Genesis a greater unfolding revelation of the character of God. For now we see that God not only judges and punishes, but also does it in a merciful manner. When God acts as judge, particularly there in Genesis chapter 3, verse 11, notice that he hears their case. He allows them to speak. He asks Adam, what have you done? And just so the woman is able to justify the buck pass that Adam's put onto her, she also says something. Admittedly, she passes it down to the serpent. But notice here that God is merciful in allowing them to speak. He doesn't judge without first hearing their case. But notice that he pronounces judgment and also executes punishment. Verse 14. Then the Lord said, and what follows are the curses. And these are the curses that envelop the snake, the woman, and the man. The snake. Verse 14. The Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field, On your belly you shall go, and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. 
He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, I wonder if you've ever considered what's going on in this account. Have you ever stopped to actually consider what's going on with the snake or the serpent? Do you just sort of presume that it was a um, speaking uh, reptile? Do you have any precedence for that in the rest of the Bible? Do the animals ever speak? The donkey. Who's donkey? Can you remember? Balaam's donkey speaks to him. Okay, so we've got some precedent. So maybe it is a talking snake. <laughs> any other animals that talk? <coughs> Nothing that I can think of. <laughs> oh, come on, you got to share it with everybody. Ah, oh, he's too shy. Revelation. What was that? Revelation. Yes, in Revelation. Yep. Take into account the figurative sort of picture apocalyptic language that's being used. I think sometimes what we do is we try and treat the, chap- the text of Genesis chapter 1, as I suggested a couple weeks ago, in a literary fashion. But somehow as soon as we get into Genesis 3, we now deal with it literally. You see, whereas perhaps the account is still to be treated in a literary fashion. Is it literally a speaking snake? Well, that's one of the possibilities as you interpret the text. Is that then consistent with what the text is telling us? So I urge you and encourage you to go back to the text and try and work out what it's saying. One of the things that it could be, could be, uh, under a number of possible interpretations... Uh, is that it could be that Moses, as the author of Genesis, is actually trying to say something about the other religions round about at the time. See, notice down in verse 15 that the snake has offspring. Enmity will be between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, one of the literal implications of this, I guess, would be that ladies, whenever you go walking in the bush... You need to be much more careful of snakes. <laughs> Isn't that what it's saying? You know, if, if you're a female and you're of a descendant of Eve in some way, then the snakes are going to come after you. Less likely to come after the blokes. And blokes, you probably need to do something to try and crush the head of the snake. So ladies shouldn't then always go walking in the bush with blokes. <laughs> but you, you see the conundrum that you sort of can end up with if you treat the text too literally. That becomes one of the logical outcomes of the text. Now, it may be a reality that if you treat it this way, that actually there will be enmity between that of the creation and that of humanity. So there's no longer this scene that we get given most perfectly in Revelation where the lion and the lamb will lie down together. One of the things that the text of Genesis 3 can be telling us is actually there will be enmity between the created order and humanity meaning to rule over the created order, but actually they don't do it very well. So the created order starts to, well, have a bit of a go at... There's a show on TV, which I haven't seen for ages, called When Animals Attack. (laughs) Well, I reckon they should just start by reading this verse, for example, and go, see, it's come true. What else could it be? Well, it could be possibly that Moses is actually talking about the snake being a representative or representing the other pagan religions that were around about at the time. The snake was the symbol are often for other religions, and it uh, was often pictured as standing upright uh, when you look at the ancient Near Eastern uh, religions. And so this could actually be a pronunciation of judgment, where Moses is actually saying, look, the God of Israel is far more powerful than anything else that anyone is going to invent, any other religion, by bringing the snake right down to nothing. 
But notice also that in this particular curse in verses 14 and 15, there is a moment of hope. Admittedly not for the snake. The snake doesn't come off well. The moment of hope there is for who? Well, it's for the offspring of the woman. There is an expectation that the offspring of the woman, and it's a singular offspring, not a plural offspring, um, the offspring of the woman will actually crush the head of the serpent. I think it's interesting that in this particular context, Genesis is all on about generations and offspring. Hence the extended lists of genealogies in chapter 5, and a little bit later on in end of chapter, uh, chapter 10. Notice the little phrase that I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that gets recurring through the book of Genesis. These are the generations of. So surely this builds the expectation that from now on, whenever we read through the text, we're to be looking for the one who will be a, an offspring of Eve, who will perhaps crush the head of the snake. Okay, over to the curse that is brought against the woman, verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Well, clearly the curse is directed towards pregnancy and childbirth. Um, some will argue that prior to the act of disobedience, there was no, there would have been no pain in childbearing. Um, uh, your parents, uh, particularly your mother, uh, will attest to perhaps the significant pain of childbearing. Uh, your father, uh, I hope your father was there when you were born, uh, will attest to the significant pain of childbearing. A uh, little word of wisdom, I don't presume you're planning on having children very soon, but uh, let me give you some fatherly advice. This is one of those things you just tuck away and you never remember until after the fact. Um, I've been at the birth of all of my children, uh, and I have six children, so I've been at six births. Uh, the thing I forgot to do after my first uh, moment when my first child was born was take off my wedding ring. Now, if ever you know someone with a wedding ring, and when you start to crush their hand in... So my wife is holding my hand giving birth, and she just keeps squeezing. And I'm in absolute agony. I'm almost in tears. Because she's just going, oh, the pain. So next time she went into labor, I remember that, I took off the wedding ring. I think the nurses sort of, you know, they looked, no wedding rings, because she'd taken hers off because her fingers had swollen up. So, so blokes, maybe if you're really... Want to keep up the appearance? You wear the wedding ring, see, yes, we are actually married, and then I take it off and put it in the. is excruciating. <laughs> for my wife, for my wife, the pain is excruciating. It really is. So there is significant pain now in childbirth. I don't think the text necessarily implies that prior to the act of disobedience there was no pain. But notice here that the very blessing that was given to Adam and Eve, that of filling the earth and multiplying, now actually becomes very painful. It's now a cursed activity. We move to verse 16, which I think is a little bit difficult. Um, the, this little phrase, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. I think there's two different ways of interpreting this verse. And I'm undecided on which one I think is better. So let me give you both of them. And you can try and persuade me of one. Uh, the first is that um, when it says your desire shall be for your husband, it's talking that the woman's desire will be a sexual one for her husband. And in the context, there's some validity to this argument. We're talking about the intimacy of Adam and Eve. Uh, we're seeing that that intimacy is actually broken because now when they're naked, uh, in the first part of Genesis 3, they're ashamed, so they cover themselves. It's in the context of childbirth, which is a very sexual thing. Like, so there's a lot of logic that says, actually, the desire will be a sexual one 
because the woman will naturally continue to desire sexual relations with her husband. But the husband will actually abuse this privilege and this love and not treat the wife well. And so, therefore, he will rule over you. That's one interpretation. The other interpretation is, in many respects, that the phrase, your desire shall be for your husband, is more of a possession or controlling thing, and not in a sexual way. It's actually trying to go back to say, look, in the order of creation, Adam was created first and then Eve, there was a right order to the creation. After the one act of disobedience, that order is now overturned, and the woman will now try and actually, if you like, be the head of the husband. And there's a little bit of play on the words in the Hebrew, which gives a little bit of weight for this. But what it means is, when it then says the husband will rule over you, the husband will resist this, and some commentators will often then say, and try and restore right rule by force. Now, history would actually probably give great um, an attest to that fact. That actually men have tried to rule women by brute force. And in doing so, done great evils. It can be either of those two things. Whatever the case, there will be great tension in the relationship now. Now, one of the things we do need to be clear on, though, is that one of the things that the curse is not talking about, I think, is the curse is not God saying, as of now, Eve, you will be subject to your husband. Some will say, actually, God is cursing the woman and the curse is that she will now be subject to her husband. Almost, God is now establishing a new created order. Well, I find little textual evidence for that because throughout the Genesis accounts uh, and then in the rest of the New Testament understanding, there is actually an ongoing sense that actually both male and female are created in the image of God. They are equal in that regard. Both Adam and Eve are to have dominion over the earth and to rule over it together. Rather than, as a result of the curse, the woman is now subject to her husband. I don't think that that's what the curse is about. Um, the third person who is cursed is man. And notice here that man is cursed in an interesting fashion. Uh, the interpretation, I think, of his curse, I think, is far more clear. Verse 17. And to Adam, the Lord God said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken... For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Uh, the ground now is cursed. The, the actual creation itself is cursed because of man's act. And here we see that he will still continue to work the ground, it will still provide food for him, but the work will now be difficult. Remember in Genesis 2, uh, where Adam actually tills the ground, he's serving the garden. Well, you now see as a result of the curse, he's now actually always got to extract service out of the ground. He's, try, he's got to work much harder to gain food. And the certainty at the end of his life is physical death. One of the consequences of the curse. Um, one of the things that we see here is that because Adam <coughs> as the representative uh, falls, disobeys, this has significant repercussions over all of the area or the domain that has been entrusted to him. Adam has been given dominion over the earth. He names the animals. But now in his fall, in his disobedience, the ground is now cursed. Uh, we do well, particularly at our stage of life, to remember the little part of verse 19. 
until you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Uh, when I was in my early 20s, uh, I thought I was invincible. I didn't do many stupid things, uh, but I just thought I would live forever. Uh, now that I'm a little bit older than my early 20s, I realise that that is not the case. And uh, this verse has greater significance for me. Uh, we need to remember that we are mortal in, in many senses of the word, and at some point we will return to dust. And at times we need to let that weigh heavily on our life. We need to let it weigh heavily on our understanding of who we are as people. That we remember our right place before God as our creator. The consequence at the end, uh, the end of chapter 3, is that Adam and Eve are driven from the garden and they're now outside the immediate presence of God. They now live in a place which is unlike the garden. There is death, there is decay. And yet God is merciful in his judging. Do you see the hints of mercy through this account in Genesis 3? Adam and Eve are not destroyed. God could have obliterated them and potentially started again. But they're allowed to continue to exist. The nature of their existence is radically altered. But God still allows them to exist. They can still work the ground. It will still provide food for them, albeit at a much greater cost. God clothes them in verse 21 to give them some protection. And they will still be able to bear children. And so here we need to remind ourselves that there has been a significant fracturing of the intimate relationship between God and Adam and Eve. And between Adam and Eve. Yet we also need to remember that God, because of his character, demonstrates mercy in his judgment. Adam and Eve and the creation are still his creation. He will still love and care for them. Notice how this unfolds as we move towards Genesis chapter 11. It unfolds in four significant instances. Firstly, with Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, as we've already looked at. Secondly, in Genesis 4, flip sort of towards Genesis 4, where Cain murders his brother. See, God is motivated to judge by the murder of Cain killing Abel. The punishment that's inflicted on Cain is twofold. Firstly, he's driven from the ground in verse 14. Uh, verse 13 of chapter 3, Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. You, you sense that the punishment is almost worse than Adam's. Adam was still allowed to work the ground. Cain is driven from the ground, and driven from the immediate presence, even further from the presence of God. Notice also that Cain appeals the judgment. And notice what God does. Verse 15. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. So God actually marks Cain, and in doing so shows mercy, so that no one would murder him. Chapters 8 and 9, the flood. Well, the flood account, as well as showing us the increase of sin in the world, shows us once again God's motive for judgment. He's motivated now by the total corruption of man in Genesis 6, verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Another one of those verses just to remind yourself of the sinfulness of man's heart. You may meet people, you may have friends, you may have course mates who suggest that the world is actually getting better. Humanity is improving. Sometimes go back and read that verse and consider, are we doing any better than that? And what evidence do you need? Watch the news tonight. You'll have enough evidence. 
that I think this verse generally still holds. But notice the flood of it, which we've already talked about as a decreation moment and reverses much of the created order, is also the means of God judging and punishing. It is a significant cleansing of sin in the earth. But God shows mercy. He finds Noah a righteous man and saves not only Noah, but Noah's family. And the means of salvation, well, it's the ark that they go into. At the same time, God shows mercy by giving a promise of restoration in Genesis 9, where Noah, in some senses, stands almost as if a new Adam has come. Uh, the world is reordered. The promises that were made in Genesis 1 and 2 are reiterated. Go and multiply and have children. And God establishes a covenant with, with Noah and his descendants. Fourth instance of the way in which God deals with his creation, both in judgment and in mercy, is in Genesis 11 with the Tower of Babel. And here humanity unites against God and rejects being made in his image. Humanity seek to create a name for themselves. Whereas I want to suggest that I think God has already named humanity by them being created in the image of God. And this one act of building a tower is an attempt to try and, in some senses, for man to create a name for themselves. I can't help but wonder whether or not there's also the allusion to the fact that they're trying to join heaven and earth. You know, the towers go up. They're trying to make the connection between heaven and earth, that which God has separated in the created order. Is it once again an attempt to try and undo the created order? God is motivated in his judgment in chapter 11, verse 4, because of the united corporate rejection of humanity against God. Genesis 6, 5, I think, is a much more personal. But here we actually get organised corporate rebellion against God. And so God judges them in two ways. He takes away their common language and he scatters them. And in doing so, that also is an act of mercy. He does not judge in the way in which he judges in the flood by completely obliterating. He shows mercy by actually scattering them and separating them so that they cannot come back together again to be united and then sin against God in that way. Well, how is Adam and Eve's disobedience demonstrated today? As I've suggested, because we're in Adam, well, we will continue to follow in this pattern of sin and rebellion. And I don't think we need to look too far to see how this one act of disobedience continues to work itself out in the world today. We know the world is not right. We know the world is not as it should be. And I think there's, a many, there's many numbers of ways in which this is exhibited. I want to pick up two, just for a moment. I think there are two ways that confirm this one act of Adam and Eve's disobedience. And the first is, just consider for a moment the way in which Adam and Eve hide from God. Back in the account where Adam and Eve go and hide from God, they've given into temptation, they've committed an act of disobedience, they hear God walking in the garden and they hide. They're ashamed. They acknowledge their guilt before God by hiding. And they hide behind the very thing that God has given them. The garden. They try and hide it behind the trees of the garden. And I want to ask the question, do we not do the same? Do we not try and hide from God? Do we not take up the good things of this world as an avenue for hiding from God? I think the devil is very subtle in doing this, in tempting us to hide from God. 
I think at times we're ashamed because we know we can't live the way God wants us to. And instead of coming before God and in many ways being naked before Him and recognising that we can't do what He wants, we put other things in the way, often good things that are given for our enjoyment, for our pleasure, good things that are part of the created order. But sin distorts those good things. And we create barriers between ourselves and God. And you might be sitting there thinking, well, I don't do that, I'm a Christian. Christians don't do that. Well, I suggest you do as well. Because you don't love God with all your heart. You don't love God with all your soul. You don't love God with all your life. You still sin against Him and ignore the intimacy that He's given you in the person of Jesus. And I think at times you create other things to get in the way of your relationship with God. If you're not a Christian, then you might not know that you're hiding from God. Well, I want to suggest that as you consider the passage, that you are hiding from God, whether or not you accept it or not. I want to say, consider your life. And if you think that you're hiding from God or running away from Him, you are just as foolish as Adam and Eve trying to hide from God in the garden. Where are you going to run to hide from God? Under the largest mountain at the bottom of the deepest ocean? God can still see you. Are you going to try and get off the planet, get to another parallel universe? Well, if God's brought everything into existence and has created everything, then there is nowhere you can go to hide from God. At some point, you will have to deal with coming face to face with God. So why not do it now? But the second way in which I think we continue this act of disobedience is we try and make a name for ourselves, just like the people in Genesis chapter 11. See, here the people gathered with clear intent to make a name for themselves. I think, once again, we believe we can make a difference in the world. And we believe we can do it without God. I see it in two ways. Firstly, at the beginning of the global financial crisis, notice the first thing that all world leaders did? They said, we have to have a meeting. They all fly over to Europe. I get here. Because they knew that if it was going to be hosted in America, they wouldn't all go. So they'll fly to Europe. And they come up with a plan to say, today, we bring in a new world order. This was the phrase that was used. We bring in a new world order where we will be able to control the financial monetary system of the world. Is that not sort of the language of Genesis 11? Bringing in a new world order to create a name for ourselves and have the photos where they're all lined up. Look at us. Look at what we've achieved. We've been able to bring stability to the world economic system. And some are on the sidelines saying, the thing you created. We're not going to do Keynesian economics now. Okay? But I think we do it personally as well, don't we? We like it when people like us. We like it when people know who we are. We like it when we've got lots of friends on Facebook. <laughs> and we're a bit jealous of people that have got more friends on Facebook than us. Because we presume that they're probably going to be a bit more popular than we are. We like to be known. And I think this is another temptation that we do well to avoid. It's a great danger because we need to heed the warnings of Genesis 11. Notice the judgment that comes on the people. The judgment that comes on the people when they try and make a name for themselves is God judges swiftly. Do not, friends, try and make a name for yourself. 
The New Testament tells us that we are to live as members of Christ. As Christians, we are in Jesus. We are being restored into the image of God. We are to live peaceful and quiet lives as we await the return of Jesus. Well, the Genesis account also outlines a couple of challenges for us as we live in the world. Two that are worth mentioning that we don't have much time to talk about. The first is human sexuality. Um, here, what I'm, what I'm interested in exploring, but I don't have the time, is the way in which the Bible portrays a picture of sexuality that the world, in its sinfulness, doesn't understand and keeps perverting. There is a sexual intimacy between Adam and Eve that, as I observe the world, the world doesn't want to follow, that the world continues to reject. So I say to you, how would you treat your sexuality? Would you treat it in accordance with the way in which you were created and the way in which God intends? Or will you continue to give in to your culture and those around about you and follow their lead? Secondly, the reality of the world is that work will be necessary. But I don't want to say it will be a necessary evil. See, work is actually a good thing. It was created before the act of disobedience. It continues after the act of disobedience. It is necessary for sustenance and the provision of life. But we do well to keep work in its right place. And I think sometimes what we do is we run the risk of seeing work as a means of creating a name for ourselves and using all the benefits that come from work to make ourselves more popular, to hide away from God. But in doing so, we fail to understand what work is. It's a means of feeding ourselves and in the family unit, providing for others. I commend the equip papers from a couple of weeks ago to you. Finally, how ought we to respond? I think, remember Paul's argument in Romans chapter 5. The one act of righteousness performed by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the thing that overturns the act of Adam and Eve's disobedience. Let us continue to remember that and try not to hide from God, nor create a name for ourselves. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll go. Father God in heaven, we give you thanks for your word. We thank you for the book of Genesis. We ask, please, that you would continue to help us wrestle with it deeply. We ask, please, you would help us to understand it, and by understanding it, that we would know who you are, and we would understand the way in which you rightly work in this world. We pray, please, Father, that you would help us not to hide from you, and that you would help us not to make names for ourselves, but rather we would trust in your great provision your great provision of sending Jesus that we can be once again united with you and share in a great intimacy of relationship with you. Father, we also pray for our mission later on in the year. We thank you for Krish. We pray, please, that this Saturday he would speak your gospel faithfully and truthfully. We pray for ourselves in our relationships with our friends. Please help us to love them. Please help us to care for them and seek opportunities to share this great gospel message with them. And we pray all these things in your name. Amen.